Hey, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Feel free to subscribe and tell your friends. Coming up on today's show, the provincial NDP convention is in Hamilton this weekend. Is there a better leader than Andrea Horvath? Two polls came out this week about the health of Prime Minister Trudeau's liberals. They say the same thing, but come at it from two different angles. And Donald Trump's getting a new press secretary. Are you surprised Sarah Huckabee Sanders has lasted this long? Who's next? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The NDP convention uh, in town this weekend. Ontario NDP uh, leader Andrea Horvath says that as a leader, she is in for the long haul. Uh, you know, I don't know why people are always questioning leader uh, Andrea Horvath's leadership ability. Remember last year, last year, uh, during the last election campaign, um, when they were doing all the polls of various leaders and such, I think Andrea Horvath would poll as one of the best leaders people liked. It was the party that they're not happy with. So I'm not sure whether uh, Andrea Horvath is, is the problem here, but it seems that... Uh, when well, it seems this issue always comes up every so often, usually around leadership convention time or when we're gauging the lack of performance by the NDP. Here's what Andrea Horvath had to say. You never take anything for granted. And so, um, I mean, I'm, I'm hopeful that uh, that they continue to support uh, the work that I've been doing with my team to to grow our party and to uh, to push to form government. Uh, but that'll be their decision. Um, I haven't heard of anything in particular that I need to be worried about, but but uh, we'll know once the vote comes in. All right, let's bring in Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, always a pleasure to be with you, Scott. Why do we always seem to be debating uh, Andrea Horvath's leadership ability? I mean, the last poll, uh, the polls heading into the last election still had her as one of the most popular leaders. It was the party they weren't that happy with. So uh, why do we continually question Andrea Horvath's leadership? Well, I'm not sure I completely understand it, but one one argument that's out there is that uh, women, female leaders of parties are held to a higher standard than, than males are, and so they're much more likely to be subject to continual criticism. So that, that argument is out there. Is that true? It may very well be true. I think that's but, an excuse, Henry. I mean, how, yeah, or, how, how, can, that, how can that be? I mean, hmm. gee whiz, is it, again, she still polls as one of the most popular leaders. Is it her or is it the party? No, no, I think you're, I mean, I agree with you 100%. You made the, uh, a very good point. She runs ahead of her party. She, she's, I mean, in any political party, if you have a leader, you want to have a leader that pulls up your party, who is stronger than the party itself. And, and she does that job. And, and actually, that's why I think she's safe, because I think that's one reason where, you know, the, the people who are going to be voting on this, they're going to re- recognize that every time, you know, there's been an election, she's got more seats and she and she did very well the last time. Uh, you know, some people say she should have had one more seat, and we could you could talk about that. But I think in terms of, but certainly she she increased the number of seats. She brought the party into uh, official opposition status, which is very important. So you know, it was it was a success uh, for her. There's no question about it. Does the NDP need to look inward rather than at its leader? I think uh, they have to be. I, I think the big thing is they have to look at their the way they campaign. They have made. They. I mean, there was the NDP was not going to win in the last election. If we go through the election, what was happening? They were up and down at various points, and they were not going to win the last election. You could make a case that in the, the last two weeks, they you no, know, their campaign was not as strong as the other two. 
that they lost some seats they should have they should have won that you could even make the argument instead of you know uh, only winning 40 they could have won 50 but they still wouldn't have been the government and what would happen of course in that last week of that campaign which the ndp did not respond to the the conservatives came out with a very strong attack on some of the weaker candidates that the ndp had and the ndp did have some weaker candidates and they took advantage and pointed out the, the flaw, their flaws and i think that that helped the the pcs and the um, liberals were helped when um, when the leader, when Kathleen Wynne said, well, I'm not going to be you know, premier after this election, so you can feel free to vote for good liberal candidates, uh, but don't hold it against them that I'm the leader. I'm not going to be the leader the next time. And I think that meant in some places that uh, the liberal vote went up uh, compared to what it might have been, and it might have gone to the NDP. So, and, but and the NDP did not have a very good closing strategy. The previous election... They had a different type of problem. They ran a pretty good campaign across the province. Where they had a poor campaign was in the city of Toronto, and you could see it by the returns. They, they, she improved the situation for the you know, entire province, but they, they, um, the inside the city of Toronto, there were there was there were losses that they shouldn't have had. So she, they've got to pay more attention to the to the organization and having a strategy a good strategy right through the formal campaign and i think that's been the weakness that's not her weakness although she she is nominally in charge of who who runs the campaigns uh it seems that whenever the ndp gain ground the liberals just move farther to the left and edge her out and i mean we certainly saw that with kathleen Wynne in the last last election she just kept going farther it, it seems mm-hmm. as, soon as, as soon as the ndp would announce something uh, Kathleen Wynne would go over and steal it out of the shopping basket, it appeared. Um, so, and, and, and I remember saying this to Andrea Horbath, if people are upset with Kathleen Wynne that she's taking the country too far to the left, where's the appeal of the NDP? Where's the appeal of Kathleen or, or of uh, Andrea Horbath? Well, I mean, the, the, uh, the, the appeal to, uh, of the voters that are loyal to the NDP is they believe, they, they believe that the principles... Uh, that maybe sometimes you know look like they're they're liberal principles as as well, but they know the NDP really believes in those principles. They they view the liberals as opportunists. That if the if the if the liberals could win votes by going to the right, uh, they would go that. And there are some voices right now that are saying the new liberal leader should be right in the cent- right in the center, maybe even yeah. slightly a, a right of center. And there's so you know people making the case. You read though, you can read those op-ed pieces in the newspapers by important people inside the Liberal Party making that argument. Uh, but but the but the people who believe in the NDP believe it, the NDP is a party of principle, so that when they are in favor of something, they're doing uh, doing it because it's, it comes from the basic philosophy of the party. We can also see at the federal level, you know, on the pharmacare issue, the NDP has always been pushing pharmacare. Now who's getting all the uh, yeah. attention? Hmm. Is the liberals? The liberals have stole it. And, exactly. and I mean, the, the liberals traditionally have been well. It's not against the law, but they've traditionally have been very good thieves. That is, they've stolen a lot of NDP ideas when they get into a pinch. Mm-hmm. You know, because they know some. They look at which NDP ideas are popular, and they just take them and take them as their own. So how is the NDP to ever gain ground, Henry? Like, because that's what seems to be happening time and time and time again. And the NDP just comes up short all the time. What it has to do, and if you look at the provinces where it has won, uh, and, and, and even the time when they did win the one time under Bob Ray, they really need 
both opposite the other two parties to make to make mistakes yeah, or yeah. to be in a weak position. Yeah. So, for example, the the NDP uh, when it did come to power, for example, it was faced. It had the Conservative Party had just changed leaders into Mike Harris, and this was before he became important and and premier. And and the party the PCs were very weak, so they couldn't challenge the NDP. Mm-hmm. And Bob Ray had been there, you know, around uh, in that party for run the pre- previous two campaigns, so he had some experience and exposure. Uh, that was pretty good, and then the and and the liberals, I think, going into that came, campaign were pretty arrogant. They called an early election. The premier P- Peterson called an early election. I remember after that three years, people, you know, he was da- acting as if he was entitled to be yeah. reelected. I remember again. that very vividly as a young man. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So you need the the NDP's pro- when you're a third place party. If you're going to jump up, you really need both of the, the two parties to make a mistake at the same time. And so, so sometimes just having one of those parties make a mistake, like the liberals did this last time, they should have had a different leader. I, I think that's pretty clear. But the, uh, but the, but the conservatives, you know, had had sort of an interesting guy coming up, uh, you know, who came in at the last minute and he appealed to sort of the rank and not only the rank and file conservatives, uh, but he also, you know, appealed to many people, including, uh, you know, some past New Democrats and. Uh, and he and he did very well, uh, you know. In the, the he you use slogans and statements that appealed to people, and it just he just sort of lucked out there. I mean, he's he's not very popular right now. People, I mean, there's a lot of people who you know have buyer's regret on him, but you know he he was he came up at the right time. So he was not a weak campaigner. He was a he in fact was a strong campaigner. And so the NDP needed both parties to be weak in order to really come through. And so. Sometimes, so it's really some out of their hands. They can run a very strong campaign, uh, but they can't. They have to depend on both other parties making. And mistakes. that was Bob Ray's success. Was the other parties were light at the time? That's right. He, they both made yeah. mistakes. They both. They had a weak, a weak uh, first-time leader for the conservatives. They had an arrogant, uh, uh, yeah. entitled leader. In, you know, had mm-hmm. for the liberals, and boom. That there's where you are. You're looking. Federally, 2011, when Jack Layton became the official opposition, you say, well, why didn't he become the, you know, the prime minister of Canada? Is that, you know, certainly the liberals had a terrible leader at that point, and he, that's how he jumped over them. But, the, you know, Stephen Harper had run a few elections, and he, he ran a, a, you know, a solid election, and so was able to get uh, to stay in first place. What was... Point. What, to skip around here a little sure. bit uh, here, Henry, what was Bob Ray and the NDP's involvement in the whole Stelco pension deal? Why did that, what happened there? What backfired? Well, the, the, here's was the mistake, I think, is the uh, the NDP kept putting off, kept uh, uh, allowing Stelco n- uh, not to have enough money in their reserves. Because right. they, they threatened they were going to go out of business and then all these steel workers are going to lose the job. And of course, the the NDP who had strong you know labor support mm-hmm. here in Hamilton from from the union and the members of the union did not want that to happen so I think they allowed Stelco to have too long a leash right. I I don't disagree with him of of trying to make it easier for Stelco to deal with their with their deficit situation uh, but I just think he gave them too much of a too much of a leash and he let it, you know and so. It, Stelco, I'm sure, the, what I think happened, the executives of Stelco said, "This is wonderful. We're getting this really almost carte blanche not to ha- not to obey the law about yeah. funding our pension plan." And so I would fault him for being just too lax there. So, but, how do you explain still the strength for the NDP in this city? 
Well, because the... Like, wouldn't, uh, that, wouldn't that have been a major... Like, we're still talking about the Stelco pensions yeah, today. So that's right. How, how is this not resonating? Well, I mean, we have a long, a very long tradition. I mean, the very first labor person yep, yep. was was elected in Hamilton East in 1917. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have an over 100. You know, this Hamilton always always was from the very yeah. beginning a very strong labor yeah. uh, social democratic uh, town as soon as that became that party started to develop it it, it it developed first of all in hamilton and what happened we had at that time right after that time for a long time of a lot of immigration of british working class people who came mm-hmm. men who came over to work in the steel industries mm-hmm. so you had Constantly, I'd run into these people. You know, they were coming over. I remember years ago, they would become the millwrights, the machinists, the tool and die makers. They were coming from Northern England, or they were coming from Scotland, and they were strong union men, and they believed in the Labour Party. And when you would go in those days into the an NDP meeting, where I used to observe a lot and show up a lot of these meetings, see what's going on. They had the accents were primarily British yeah. or Scottish, mm-hmm. particularly Northern England. Mm-hmm. So a whole bunch of them came in, and that just you know, re, you know, and and their children and grandchildren and great grandchildren are sure. around here, yep. and you know, and party loyalties and views, you know, passed down from for many people passed down from generation to generation. Once you get that going, so that's that. I mean, our it's, it's historical roots going down through about three to four generations of uh, support for a, a social democratic party. We've talked about this before, Henry, but the rise of the Greens, will, will yeah. that become will that become Canada's third party option? I mean, you know, the the NDP have sort of, you know, uh, mm. been that and people have toyed with that, uh, but there doesn't seem to be anything new there. Uh, is How concerned are the NDP, both federally and provincially, that, that they, the, thir- the Green Party could be the third option? Well, the the federal NDP is very worried about that, and they've come out with a very strong, just about two weeks ago, uh, Jagmeet Singh came out with a very strong uh, environmental uh, package. Uh, so, yeah, it, that is, you know, because they certainly see, the you know, the, the uh, they're being pressed uh, there. But, you know, particularly in, in writings where the NDP has support from people who are more middle-class people and better-educated people, uh, and not necessarily union people, or they may be union people, but they're in professions like teaching and things like that. So those those people are much, you know, they're 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 you know they're affected by you know the the Greens' very effective arguments uh, to them at least that uh, that in fact uh, climate change is getting worse and worse, and we don't have much time, and we got to do something, and that the NDP has ignored this issue. Uh, and then that's that's the argument that's been made in various places, especially in British Columbia. That's been so, you know fairly effective. hasn't quite hasn't worked uh, hit here yet, except one place, Guelph. And so we'll have to see whether this spreads uh, anymore. But I mean, I think going into the next election, the NDP is going to have to have a strong uh, environmental package. How big will the environment be as an issue heading into this election? Do we need to hear more from the Greens other than just their environmental policy? Well, see, that's where they're weak because people will say, "Oh, okay, sure, the environment, environment, I can agree is an important issue, but there's all sorts of other issues, and they have, you know, and they have they have to have plans for the other ones, and particularly economic growth uh, is is a very important one, managing the economy, managing man- and managing the books of the of the government. They have to show that they they have a plan to do deal with all of that, 
and and to be convincing and it's it's very hard you know they're they're the fourth party and it's just i mean they're really far back so it is it is hard mm. for them to to make big inroads they just you know maybe they'll get a little bit better but Again, in this particular case, the NDP now becomes sort of the policy thieves. They can start taking, you know, the green ideas. That's a good point, yeah. Yeah, so they could start, <laughs> and I think that's what maybe, you know, you look at what Jagmeet Singh and the federal NDP did a couple of weeks ago, and I think they learned quite a bit from the uh, the green playbook. So yeah. that's what happens is that the parties that are, that are stronger saying, okay, when you're faced with an upstart, uh, party who's trying to take your support. Well, let's borrow some of their good ideas and make them our own. And uh, that that's true of the liberals, and I think it's now going to be true of the NDP doing that with the Greens. And and but you know, it's the whether well, how you know will that completely uh, uh, hold them off? I don't know. I mean, we have a very you know um, we have had some. I mean, in, in riding in Hamilton West, there are a number of new Democrats who have gone over federally. Have gone over to the Greens, including mm-hmm. at least one uh, former um, NDP candidate, and uh, so yeah. Now, how how well they're going to do? But I mean, that, the West End of Hamilton is, is is an area where they should do fairly well. It really depends, though, on what the uh, the who is the NDP candidate is, and they don't have one yet, which I think has to be a worry for the fed, federal NDP. I only got about thirty seconds left. Sure. We were uh, started this conversation with Andrea Horvath's leadership. Right. Is there anyone else in the wings that can do a better job than she is? Well, I mean, they have some strong people there uh, in in the caucus. There is no doubt. Uh, but I just think the party traditionally, you know, is, gives their leader a long leash as long as they keep getting better election after election, and they they think there there's you know a chance to keep keep going up some more. And I think and I, and I, so I think they're they're a more tolerant party. You, you know, the other two parties, particularly the conservatives, you got to win quickly or else you know they're they're ready to get rid of you. The NDP is more tolerant. They recognize their way behind, uh, you know, they're behind the other two parties, so they're willing to be more tolerant of their leaders. So that combined with the fact that she runs ahead of her party in the polls, that I think those two things will keep her safe. Henry Jasek has been with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Okay, very good, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in Tim Powers, Vice Chairman, Summa Strategies. He's been an advisor to national party leaders and cabinet ministers and such. Two polls come out today. Uh, one says that uh, only 32% of the Canadians would re-elect Trudeau, while another says that they have stopped the bleeding in regard to the SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal. Is it half full? Is it half empty? Uh, who knows? Let's bring in Tim Powers. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You are welcome, Scott. Oh, by the way, did I tell you I'm coming to Hamilton in August? You guys are hosting a big rugby game down there. So there you go. Get to see you in person. So you're a huge rugby fan. I'm the in, in my other life. I am the chair of Rugby Canada. So really, uh, yeah. And you guys are hosting us at uh, at Tim Hortons Field on August 24th. So that's wow. more important than what we're about to talk about. No, wow. Not, you know, you that is an animal game. I played high school rugby. And, See, I knew I liked you. And, and, and uh, I think it was the chanting and the drinking mostly, but, you know, I digress. <laughs> I don't know where well, the chants came from. Drinking or something, the, uh, uh, the, the liberals might uh, continue to do if they stop the slide at the polls. I mean, you're, you, the two things you, the two polls you cited 
are not in necessarily uh, diametrically opposed. No. Um, I do think they have probably stopped the so-called bleeding. I think a number of polls have shown that uh, they're they're not falling any further at the moment. So what does uh, let's let's start there with sure. that. Okay, so uh, you know we can look at this many different ways. Uh, it, it appears as if. The, you know, the, the tourniquet has been put on. There's somebody holding their, you know, their hand over the wound. The bleeding is stopped. What does that mean to you if you're a party? That means, well, well, first of all, it means you can breathe. Um, it means you can say, okay. You're not dying. Uh, so we're, we, we've hit the apparent bottom now. What do we do now? So there'll be a bit of a sense of relief because, I don't know how many times you and I talked about SNC over a three or four month period. And every time we were talking about it, Canadians were hearing about it, not just from us, but through other forms, and it was having an impact on the Liberals. It seems that that is no longer the case, which means they have to understand, okay, where do we go now to try and what do we do to try and win back support? So that's what it means. Time to breathe, time to recalibrate time to focus on now winning back voters. Uh, we saw earlier in the week uh, six premiers banding together, talking about uh, two bills involving uh, the uh, energy oil industry yep. and such. Uh, obviously a, a, a different election for the prime minister this time than last. Uh, d- d- does he try to have a kumbaya moment with these premiers? Does he try to find the common ground, or does he go into the next election battling them? Uh, I think he'll probably end up going into the next election battling them, but I think there's something that needs to be taken from all of that by the prime minister. Yes, the the six premiers who have uh, were party to this letter are all progressive, conservative, or conservative premiers, uh, I believe. Uh, so some on his team might want to just dismiss it as one partisan act. And yeah, of course, there's partisanship to it all. But I think there's also some re- harsh reality that you need to look at when you get through the partisanship, and that is in uh, the regions where these premiers are representing Canadians, um, there is a sense of frustration that goes just beyond the politics about how some of the industries they work in are under threat. They're under threat for a whole variety of reasons, including some of the, they believe, the legislative uh, agenda items of, of, of the prime minister. The prime minister's got to be acutely aware of that. Can't just dismiss it as being climate change deniers. And that's what he's up. been doing to this point, is just pointing fingers and saying, you know, again, sort of the virtue signaling, you know, these yep. people are doing this, these people are doing that. At what point does he have to stop and listen to what they're saying? Well, if he doesn't, I think he's going to have real problems uh, in in some of those places. Look, in Alberta, from an actual political map perspective, they're they're, they're going to want to try and hold some seats, uh, but whether that's possible or not. Um, in Ontario, m- maybe he doesn't necessarily have to pay as much attention at the moment, given the current state of public opinion on the Premier, and how, Premier Ford, and how he's... Uh, not held in the greatest of uh, of esteem at the moment, but that can all change, as we know. Uh, I think, though, he, he needs to look at places where he does have support who weren't signatories to that letter. So my home province, Newfoundland and Labrador, they're not very happy with the prime minister 
uh, over Bill C-69 because of the extra regulatory burden that uh, puts on them as it relates to offshore resources. So if some of these uh, provinces where the prime minister is popular uh, start to wane and in areas like Manitoba where he has seats in areas like New Brunswick where he has all sorts of liberal seats, if he just dismisses these people and the claims from their premiers outright, he is going to lose seats. So he's got to find a way, and it's more than just buying the Trans Mountain Pipeline, uh, to bring some comfort to uh, Canadians from one coast to the other, regardless of who represents them, who are in resource industries, who are worried whether or not their futures are on the line or not. Uh, the Prime Minister seems to be better at selling good than bad. He's better when times yeah. are, are, are good than bad. We certainly saw that with the Sunny Ways campaign uh, last election, and we talked many times, and it was up until like about six months ago, he was ready to run the same campaign uh, over again. How does he deal with that? Because when the Prime Minister is mad, he's not as attractive. He doesn't, and I'm not sure he even gives us that feeling of strength and, and authority when he does get angry. How does he balance this? How does he, how does he manage in tough times when it's not sunny ways? Yeah, he's got to find others to do the anger for him, um, and that's not an unusual, whether they be high-profile surrogates. You see Catherine McKenna talking about Hamilton. Catherine's, of course, from Hamilton, uh, coming after the premiers uh, more aggressively on climate change and climate change denying. Uh, I think what they're going to try and do is kind of do this in a, in a tiered way where uh, ministers or well-known liberals with responsibility areas in whether it be environment or health or uh, fiscal policy will will do the hard negative work and they'll try and put the prime minister in a place where you know he's talking more positively about the future what they do and how they try to sell pharmacare for example will be fascinating to watch because I think they think that they can wrap pharmacare up as a great debate uh, where there won't be any debate about the future of Canada and health and wellness and it's all tied to pharmacare and the prime minister will work to sell that in a positive uh, aggressive vein while others will and I'll uh, demean anybody who has a different view to it, and I do mean demean deliberately. So you, you try and keep the prime minister, your leader, away from throwing the muck, but you find a bunch of others uh, who will do that muck raking and throwing. Is the pharmacare debate the same as a Medicare debate? Is it the no, same? I, uh, and and because I think I, I'm I'm getting the impression that that's what the what what the prime minister is trying to do is paint it as the same sort of argument. Like these people deserve everybody deserves medic um, free medical care. We all now deserve free drugs. But again, you know, I've heard many experts who've been on this show that have said we got a problem here, and that twenty to thirty percent of the people can't get their meds. But that's not worth changing the other 60% of the system in order to get that. We don't all need it. Some that do should get it. Is, is there balance in that argument? There should be. I mean, a conference board report, I think it was from 20, Conference Board of Canada 2017, said 98% of Canadians had access to some form of, of drug coverage. And then there, I think the public budget officers also used that 20% figure that then goes on to say with well, 20% of people have trouble getting it and there are different degrees of trouble is that worth 
15 billion dollars a year and a whole systemic change and how are we going to pay for that but the prime minister is not going to get into that level of detail he is going to make it about you know he's going to try and uh, co-opt the spirit of tommy douglas and uh, many of his many millennial voters may not know well the history of tommy douglas but they certainly will know a Trudeau version of that history during the election campaign, because I think he's going to try and then say, you know, oh, look at what, you know, Ford is doing in Ontario because of the linking they're going to try and do between mm-hmm. Ford and Shear. Look what he tried to do with, uh, with, with public health care, cut the funding. Look at what he did with autism. You know, this is the, the battle line. I need you on side. So I suspect that's where they're going to go. In fact, we'll be a free-floating thing in, in it, that discussion. Is this another quick reaction jerk to the left for the Liberals? To cut the NDP off years, of the past? They do it, I think, from time to time. I mean, I think this first appeared in a Liberal platform in 1997, so 22 years, and they talked about it beforehand. But, yeah, I, I mean, look, they still believe Jagmeet Singh is very vulnerable, uh, they want to get some green voters who might be interested in this. So yeah, good. It's a long-held liberal tradition to run from the left and govern a little bit more closer to the center or even center right. Uh, many uh, on the left have said that uh, are, are painting Doug Ford, uh, um, are painting a picture of Doug Ford as they're uh, describing or discussing uh, Andrew Shear. Is uh, Doug Ford an asset? or a hindrance to Andrew Scheer? It's an excellent question, and I I think it's one Scheer himself grapples with. Look, uh, Doug Ford has proven, again, take the politics out of this for the moment, what you may think of the man. He's proven he can win elections, and he's a conservative, and he's used lots of conservative organizers and messaging and tactics and strategy to do that. Andrew Scheer needs to find a way to tap in at least to that organization as best as he can to try and win seats in Ontario. Because if Andrew Scheer is going to be prime minister, he needs to win more seats in Ontario. So he needs part of, the, if not the entirety of the Ford organization. So he needs them there. From a public perception perspective, uh, you talked about polls. I mentioned them a few moments ago. Ford is terribly unpopular at the moment, has fallen from grace faster perhaps than, uh, than than anyone would have imagined. He's lower now in some polls in terms of personal popularity than Kathleen Wynne was. That is real in as much as you hear lots of reports of people certain parts of Ontario are telling candidates from all parties that when they go to the doors. The other thing, so sure needs to be conscious of that. He can't just run from him because he's unpopular. But it's also about Sheer has to have his own identity. He can't be seen as the kid brother to Doug Ford or Jason Kenney or, uh, you know, Brian Palliser in Manitoba. He's got to be himself. So it's a bigger issue about Sheer asserting his identity, and he's got to manage all of those other challenges and opportunities before him. Uh, safe to say it's not fashionable to support Doug Ford right now. Does that mean he doesn't have the support? Uh, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's funny, right? I mean, uh, it was a, just uh, 14 months ago that Doug Ford was the hot, sought-after speaker in conservative circles. He was in the conservative federal convention in Halifax. He was the big hit. 
Uh, I think the Fords look at loyalty too. Uh, so Shear's got to play this the right way. Would I, that, that said, if I were Andrew Shear, would I be barnstorming all of Ontario with Doug Ford? No. And I think Doug Ford is wise enough to know that. Would I be running around Etobicoke with Doug Ford? Maybe that's less of a challenging thing. And these all, all these politicians keep score, right? So sure, again, has to be cognizant of that because Doug Ford, for good or for bad, is still going to be Premier of Ontario for the next three years. If Andrew Scheer wins, uh, he has to work with the provinces, so he has to think about that as he computes his strategic alliances. Uh, we all saw the ads on uh, uh, during the ba- uh, basketball game. Although I, I was just uh, asking our producer if there was as many ads on last night's game as there was the one before. I don't know if I saw I as many. Think so. I, I don't watched, think there were, and I wonder if that's a reaction, Tim. I wonder if there's, uh, that's a reaction, Tim, to everybody complaining about so many ads on the game before. Well, you, you, you work in broadcasting. You, you know what happens. Uh, broadcasters, particularly in this age, uh, not, tend not to be as worried about the complaints as they are about having ads to run. So, yes. I don't know, maybe. Uh, that's not what I heard. I mean, certainly the lead-up into the game was there were going to be more of these ads. Uh, honestly, I can't remember too many of them from last mm. night. No, I don't we either. may all have been caught up in the euphoria of, uh, <laughs> of the game. Uh, in those ads, they paint uh, the liberals paint Andrew Shear as weak, the bobblehead doll, and um, you know a yes man to Doug Ford. What are your thoughts on that strategy? I mean, I, I think it's been pretty obvious that they're trying to tie Shear to the most unpopular conservatives they can find. Uh, they've you know, tried to tie him to Trump, as you know, before in the past. They've tried Stephen Harper. Um, and, and again, it's about Sheer not having his own identity. So there's clearly some research that shows that, uh, and, and I've seen some this week that was, I think, Star had it that that showed there is an association being made in certain parts of Ontario between Ford and Sheer. Uh, we know from recent elections out east uh, that that association, Trudeau, the association between Trudeau and whoever the Liberal incumbent was being made with people, the ones that happened during the SNC-Lavalin, that was, that was pretty clear. So that does happen to all leaders, not just Andrew Scheer. So I think it's a predictable tactic. Scheer's challenge and opportunity is to change the frame, right? So the benefit of not being super well-known is you can also lead the definition of who you are uh, Shear's got to get more aggressive in doing that, so we may see more ads before uh, b- b- before they can no longer, uh, uh, or before they're subject to specific spending caps that kick in. I think at the end of June or early July. Tim, are you surprised where the prime minister and the liberals find themselves right now? Yeah, I mean, again, I think we have to put this in context. Are we surprised if we were just? the world unfolded two months ago, then we would say no. But I, I, I think, again, if you step back, uh, if we, you asked me this a year ago, I would say absolutely. Look, Justin Trudeau uh, is put himself in a position where he is not, is, is not the heavy favorite going into the election. In some polls, he is, uh, he is behind, in some way behind. Uh, he has created circumstances where uh, somebody else can win this election. You wouldn't have thought 
that that would have been the case a year ago, and Andrew Shear finds himself in those circumstances, as does Jagmeet Singh, as does Elizabeth May, trying to take advantage of advantage of them. It's uh, uh, it really is why many people enjoy the game aspect of politics because it can change when you least expect it to. Uh, at the end of the day, is this enough to make people change parties? <sighs> Which the, the the mood of around Trudeau? Yeah, I mean, what's happened? Is this enough? You know, at the end of the day, you know, people say they don't like change. Yet at the end of the day, they always say they vote for change. Um, is this enough to change people's? Not in and of itself, I don't think. Yeah. I, I think I think the, the camp. Yeah, I hate always saying this, but this campaign, I think, will matter. Uh, Trudeau's got to work to win people back. Shear's got to work to show that he's uh, ready to be prime minister. Uh, I think the bitterness that exists towards Trudeau is more intense than they have probably expected and would have expected after four years, and they are largely entirely responsible for that themselves. Is that bitterness and anger uh, enough to say, okay, we're you know going to elect a Green candidate because we want some kind of minority coalition, or we're, yeah, we're for sure going to vote for Sheer in Ontario because we, you know, we weren't... We're ready to give that guy uh, the benefit of the doubt. Um, yeah, I, I don't think all of the die is cast, but there, there's this distemper, as I like to st- describe it, in the land is real. And if you're the incumbent, you got to be worried about it. And Trudeau, the clock keeps ticking to try and, and win back some favor among people who are more likely to vote for him than us. Tim Powers has been with us, Vice Chairman of Summa Strategies. Tim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Talk again soon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. News coming out of the United States. What a surprise. We never hear about that. This is uh, odd, though, and I think many are surprised that she stayed in this position this long. But Sarah Huckabee Sanders is out as press secretary for Donald Trump. She's stepping down at the end of the month. Uh and, and uh, you know, got a life, got three kids, uh, and, and this is a very high burnout position. So I think many are surprised that she lasted as long as she did. We're going to touch on that and uh, how the president reacted when asked if foreign agents wanted to give him, him, him information about his political po- uh, opponents. How would he react? And he would welcome it. Let's bring in Reggie Giacchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He's based in Washington. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on all of this and, of course, Raptors Mania. Reggie, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good afternoon. I guess this is one of those times when perhaps you might rather be in southern Ontario, Reggie, as opposed to Washington. Well, I mean, it is 22 degrees there, so I mean, I would take that because it's kind of cloudy and rainy here. <laughs> uh, what has it been like for you making the adjustment to living down there in Washington? You know what? The first kind of year and a half of being here was was um, was difficult, only because it's just such a it's such a different place from when I was in Toronto. But I mean, when I kind of jumped into this political spectrum down here, it was, you know, I spent five years covering Rob Ford at City Hall in Toronto. And then I came down to kind of what started up down here. And there's a lot of similarities. It, it's been a, a kind of a whirlwind and my head kind of spins all the time. And every day you kind of wake up with amnesia because everything seems brand new again, but yeah. it makes it interesting. How do you compare it to, you know, being in politics in the U.S. and in the heart of it in Washington as compared to being here? 
Well, I mean, politics in Canada can be really divided into, you know, whether or not you're looking at the local level. You know, provincial politics kind of makes big news at home. Federal politics can sometimes kind of sit on the back burner until a scandal comes up and somebody says something and then it kind of comes to the forefront. Down here, Washington is at the forefront at all times, and it kind of oftentimes will beat out lower level or state level politics. But at the end of the day, you know, a state level politician has to run on either a Democratic or a Republican ticket. So state level down to the local levels are all kind of looking up to President Trump to kind of keep all the votes going in one line on a ticket. So things are really more focused down here, and you're always kind of paying attention to one thing because there is a big trickle down to the lower level. Hmm. All right, let's talk about uh, the stepping down of uh, Sarah Sanders as press secretary. Are you surprised she lasted this long? I'm not surprised she lasted this long. I'm just surprised that somebody was in a position for this long in the Trump administration. I mean, mm. Sarah Sanders, she's been around for uh, a number of years now, three and a half years uh, inside kind of Trump orbit. She was a, a kind of a staunch uh, person standing with Trump when he was simply just a candidate, when he was then the nominee. She's been around him. She's done a very good job at towing the line, at getting the president's message across, sometimes not caring whether or not she's actually speaking factuals from the podium when she used to hold a press briefing. But this is somebody who has done the president well in his eyes because he says one thing, she doesn't go against it, she pushes what his message is forward, much to the chagrin of anybody else who's in the press gallery. So why now? I mean, we're hearing her family and I'm sure there's a high burnout in this. Any reason for this now? Well, I mean, look, she hasn't really been doing this job for the last kind of three months. It's been 95 or 96 days since she held an actual press briefing in uh, in the Brady room. She's been kind of doing these driveway drive-bys over the last couple of months, getting a couple of questions in. So there has been questions as what she's actually been doing for the last three mm. months of this job. Uh, that said, of course, there is a high burnout rate, but she says that she's, you know, ready to go and spend time with her family. She's 36 years old. You said she's got kids. She's got a husband. She's going to focus on that. But there is a potential political aspiration going forward. Her father was the governor of Arkansas. Now there is kind of a, uh, with the president's backing right now, a hope that in three years from now, she will kind of put her hat in the race to become the governor. So how will she, how will history judge her in this position? I mean, we all know what happened to all the rest of them. Everyone seems to be a character. How will she be uh, remembered in this position? Well, she's going to be remembered simply, A, that she was there the longest. She beat out Sean Spicer. She definitely beat out Anthony Scaramucci, who was in for just a couple of minutes or so. Uh, but Sarah Sanders, I mean, she, she held herself and held her own for the three years that she was in that department and then for the two-ish years that she was standing behind the podium. The problem is she's going to be judged simply on the fact that she did not tell the truth on numerous occasions over those two years from sitting behind the podium, mm. uh, up to and including when you have the Robert Mueller report out there saying that, yes, she did in fact lie when she said that the FBI had come and told her stories about James Comey, about rank and file, not having any kind of faith in him. We found out that that was actually a lie, and she perpetuated that lie over and over to people in the media, despite the fact that people were fighting her on it. So uh, there's rumor that she may uh, eventually go into politics, run for governor of Arkansas, I guess similar to her father. Um, will this come back to haunt her, the fact that she was untruthful? Well, I mean, it, it's very possible, but this is kind of a whirlwind city for politics. And, you know, things kind of, they get said, they get caught up in the wind, it goes up in the sky. And then, you know, a couple of years later, people may not remember this. This is going to be something the Democrats, especially if she does put her hat in that ring, there will be, you know, so whatever Democrat opponent she's up against is going to call this track record out of mistruths. And if you want to call them alternative facts being spewed out for the two years that she was the press secretary. But, you know, a lot of times we've seen Republicans in this position where they kind of toe the line of the president 
efficient. They get that message out there, not, you know, re- really having a care for whether it's truthful or not. And they still get voted in by the Republican electorate. So she may not have a difficult time in a hard Republican state trying to get, uh, you know, elevated up into that governor position. But that's something we'll have to see three years from now. Uh, you, you talked about how she really had nothing to do in the last little while with the press conferences. Uh, how does that change moving forward? How do you get away with not giving press conferences? Is that just the new norm now? Well, we've always known that the president wants to be his own communications chief. He says what he wants to say. We know that, you know, in his words and in the words of the people in the communications department, that his tweets speak for himself, despite the fact that he'll often contradict what his tweet says, or he'll have to make the press secretary contradict what he just said in a tweet. So it's been a difficult position since Sean Spicer got up there and said that it was the biggest inauguration in the history of the world. Uh, that said, it is, it's a, it's a difficult thing for, uh, for the president to have now going forward, because if somebody does step into Sarah Sanders, role, there is now kind of a, a precedent to not hold these daily press conferences, to let the president just kind of try to yell over the of the blades of Marine One when he's standing mm. on the lawn at the White House. So whether or not we see these things back in place going forward is anyone's, uh, is anyone's guess. This position has r- really attracted the attention of a lot of people over, over this presidency for obvious reasons. Will we see the same thing with the next press secretary? Will this person be a character as well? Well, I mean, it's very possible, especially if he decides to choose somebody who's already strong and who's already a staunch supporter of the president. I mean, when Sean Spicer was in that position, it was easy for reporters to kind of goad him into saying things that were untrue and then calling him out on it. And there was Mm. these, uh, you know, kind of cordial back and forth. Sarah Sanders, when she said something, if she didn't want to hear what you had to say, she would shut you down in that position and then move on to the next person. And she would get to the point of, you know, look at CNN, where she had the press pass of Jim Acosta taken away because the the kind of back and forth became too heated frequently. So Sarah Sanders was strong in that position. If the president wants to keep the message moving forward from the comms department, he needs to find somebody, if he chooses somebody, to have that kind of strength that Sarah Sanders had, despite the fact that oftentimes it was a little over the edge. Uh, Is being or has being Donald Trump's press secretary uh, harmed her career? Is Is that a damaging position? Well, there have been kind of comments out there for the last 24 hours basically saying that this could be difficult for Sarah Sanders to walk into a private corporation to pick up, say, you know, uh, any kind of communications job because she has been called out for so long now for simply lying based on what the president is saying and pushing that out as what she's trying to tell the media. So it would be hard for a private company to look at that track record and say, well, can I actually trust you to put, you know, the best interests of this company forward when we know what you've said in the past? That said, there are a number of kind of right wing publications. There's a lot of Republican lobbying groups. There's a lot of people who still believe in what the president has to say and still believe that she did the best job that she could with the president behind her, uh, you know, and and put her into a position. So whether or not she moves into the private sector or lays low for a few years and then moves into kind of a political ring, she does have a bit of a tail that's going to follow behind her. And whether or not it catches up to her and potentially bites her is going to be anyone's guess. On the other hand, Reggie, do people cut these people some slack, whether it's it's this one or any of those in the past, thinking, well, gee. Look what the job is and look what you have to do. How do you do that and, and stay sane? Well, I mean, anybody can do that job and, and, and can do it to their ability. The problem is, is that we have on record inside that Mueller report of Sarah Sanders admitting, yeah, I was standing up there and I was lying, despite yeah. the fact that everybody was calling me out for lying and I was lying that I was lying. Uh, that's something that, you know, most press secretaries in the past, sure, they have to get the message of the uh, of the administration across and they've got an agenda that they've got to, you know, make sure that the ducks are lining up for. But when you're actually standing at the podium telling 
telling the media, which is in essence telling the American people falsehoods on a daily basis, that is something that's going to be difficult. All right, let's talk about uh, whether you can uh, whether you can get information from other countries or not in regard to your opponents during an election. This uh, also on the global site. Uh, when U.S. President Donald Trump was asked, this was during an ABC uh, News interview with George uh, Stephanopoulos, uh, and asked whether uh, he would take harmful uh, information about political opponents from Russia or China, etc., or if he would report to the FBI. He said, well, I think maybe you do both. I think you might want to listen. There isn't anything wrong with listening. Uh, that being said, the chair of the U.S. Federal Election Commission said, uh, quote, let me make something 100 percent clear to the American public and anyone running for public office. It is illegal for any person to solicit, accept, receive anything of value from a foreign national in connection with the U.S. election. How is this playing out there? Well, I mean, look, it, it is, in, it's in essence hogwash what the president said to George Stephanopoulos. And anybody who has, you know, a, a, any kind of basic reading comprehension can see the very beginning of the Mueller report that says this is not allowed. You cannot accept help from a foreign adversary when it comes to an election. It undermines the democratic process of how this election is carried out. We already know that there was turmoil created when the president's son and a group of people met with a Russian lawyer at Trump Tower because they said they had dirt on Hillary Clinton. It turns out there was no actual dirt, but we know what happens. We know the FBI gets involved and we know that it creates a string of events that are illegal. So for the president to say that, of course, I would go and read it because that's called opposition research. Opposition, uh, opposition research is what happens inside your war room with your political allies trying to make sure that you best the opponent. It is not a foreign adversary calling you up saying, I have information on XY candidate. I should give it to you and then see what happens. That is illegal. The president says that the FBI director is wrong in saying that that's illegal. The president, in effect, is wrong when he says that, of course, I would read that because anybody would. Nobody would actually do that. So uh, he's pretty much incriminated himself again. Where does this go? Well, he tried to back up a little bit when he was doing this kind of 50-minute roundtable uh, phone call with Fox News this morning where, you know, he said, quote, of course you have to look at it because if you don't look at it, you're not going to know if it's bad. How are you going to know if it's bad? Well, the president is tr he's trying. Where do you best. draw that line? How do you square that circle, Reggie? <laughs> he, he, well, he, wait he, a sec. I don't know if it's obscene or not. I have to look and, and, and judge. I mean, you know, the sad part is, Reggie, his supporters are going to buy that. Of course they are. This is like kind of clicking the link that you know is going to be a virus on your computer, but you Ex click it anyways because exactly. you got to make sure it's a virus. It's like a sign that says wet paint. Exactly. So the president is saying, look, you have to see it. At the end of the day, if somebody's coming to you as the president or as the candidate saying, I have information and you're a foreign adversary, you don't look at what the information is. You take what that person has told you and you go to the FBI and you rat them out for it. That's what's inside the law. So the president, of course, his supporters are going to say, well, look, the president has the right to know these things. The president has the ability to do these things. They will believe what the president tells them to believe. At the end of the day, though, the president was wrong when he said it. Uh, and I guess this is why there isn't a lot of press conferences. Well, I mean, very well, it, it could be why there's not a lot of press conferences. But when there are these kind of, you know, lawn pressers with the president, uh, he does it in front of Marine One because it's difficult to hear, because he can pick and choose what he wants to talk about and who he's going to talk to, and he can walk away at any point. That's why a press secretary is important, so that we can actually get uh, information about the administration. But it also gives the president an ability to walk into the room and talk to people, you know, not having to scream at them from five feet away with a helicopter behind them. So does this go 
any farther, or is this just another Trumpism that we we accept and we move on? Well, I mean, it very likely might move on over the weekend, but this is just giving more fire, uh, more fuel rather, to this uh, to this uh, Democratic push to get the president impeached by saying, "Look, the president is not carrying out the uh, duties of the Oval Office in the proper manner. He's not living up to the pledge that he made on the day he was inaugurated because he's officially saying now, well, look, if foreign adversaries can help you get elected, maybe you should be able to uh, kind of listen to what they have to say." He tried to equate that to having you know diplomatic conversations with other leaders, which is obviously not the case, but it's just giving more ammunition for Democrats and for the political opponents that are going to try to take him on next year to go after him to say, look, there are rules that need to be followed and you're trying to not follow them. It's going to catch up with you. Uh, how, and when he says things like this, how can you blow off the Mueller report? Well, I mean, look, the president is trying to bl- has been trying to blow off the Mueller report with no collusion and no obstruction since the but day. But now he's saying, but now he's saying, but it's okay to look at it. Well, I mean, th- I mean, that's th- the whole that was the, that was the center of all this discussion. Of course it was. And it's probably going to come back to to haunt the president during the election campaign when commercials can start being put out, when political groups can start putting out information online and on TV. These are all things that are going to come back kind of in verbal and picture form as we head closer to the election. But for the president right now, he's going to focus on, look, that report, despite the fact that it didn't say no collusion, no obstruction, he'll fight and say no collusion, no obstruction. He'll say that you can take information from a foreign adversary, but then he'll also say that you can take it but not do anything with it. If it's bad, you can hand it to the FBI but maybe you won't. There's a lot of words that kind of just get jumbled up into a box. You throw them out onto the street. You pick the words up that you want. That's how his supporters have been seeing him for the last couple of years. That's how they'll see him going forward. He's the master of a spin. He can do what he wants when he wants to say what he wants. But then there's another party out there who's going to come back and try to fight him. Will this interview on ABC, will, 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 is this incriminating him in any way? Well, I mean, it's not painting a good picture around him and it's not keeping him in a good aura. Of course, he's saying things right now that are on the record. He'll go back and say, well, it doesn't matter because it was just an interview and that's a biased station and they're against Donald Trump. Yeah, but, but he it, said he said what he said. Like, how, course, how can how can George uh, Stephanopoulos be, be, be in, in any way uh, blamed for what Trump said? Oh, he. The president will try to blame him for spinning the words or saying the words out of out of context. You have to think back. Just earlier this week, the president had made some kind of comment about how uh, there was going to be spying on North Korea, and he actually said those words. And when he was called out for it, he said, "Well, that's what I said. It's not what I meant." So even now, when the president's <laughs> saying his own words, he's telling you, "Well, you got to read between the lines and possibly not listening to what I'm saying because only believe it the moment I say it. Don't believe it a few minutes later." Any rumors flying around at who's going to replace Sarah Sanders? There are some rumors right now that the first lady's. Uh, Director of Communications Stephanie Grisham could be pushed into that role. The president really likes her. The first lady really likes her. They say that she's strong. They say that she's, uh, you know, uh, kind of one of those staunch Trump supporters uh, in that realm of Sarah Sanders. So Stephanie Grisham is a name that we could see going forward. We could also simply see the president become his own communications director and kind of, you know, take take control of what the message is at all points during the day like he already does. Could it be the position won't be filled? It's very possible. We could see somebody from Fox News put in that position. We could see somebody from inside the administration put in that position. Or like we said, we could see somebody from just within inside the Trump realm take on the position in a kind of a quasi way and just put the message out there when they need to be out there. Otherwise, let the president's fingers do all of his talking for him. Uh, will this change with having a new press secretary or not having one? Will this change the White House in any way? Is there anything, any sort of revelation, any turning point here with this? 
I think the cement has pretty much solidified at this point where the, 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 the conversations and the tone that comes from the White House are what we are going to see for the next year and potentially for the next four years, regardless of who's standing behind that podium, if that podium is ever used again for a press briefing uh, over the next year or so. Uh, whoever comes in there next, they're going to have that job of having to t- uh, take the daily task of listening to what the president says, understanding what the president says, and trying to put that message out there, whether it's the president pushing that message or a journalist out there trying to claw a different message out of them. Well, it's never dull, is it, Reggie? And uh, you got lots to think about as you head over the weekend. Uh, my goodness. Uh, Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington correspondent, Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 5.30 and 6 for more on this. As usual, Reggie, great job. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Thank you, sir. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.